That's all I have to say. (laughs) This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. Welcome to our newest program, Philosophy for Theologians. My name is Camden Busey. We realized many of our discussions on the Reformed Media Review are drifting toward the philosophical, and we also believe there's a general lack of good philosophical resources, at least from people working from a Reformed theological framework. So as a result, we've produced this new show to tackle these issues properly. Our goal in philosophy for theologians is to provide an overview of a particular philosophical figure or an idea and to analyze it critically through the lens of Scripture. And that doesn't mean proof-texting Kant's views, but it does mean that we want to consider everything in light of God's revelation. Does the Bible teach a phenomenal and a noumenal realm? What is the role of the senses in providing proof for various proposals? How can we account for the universal claim that 2 plus 2 equals 4? We not only want to address these types of questions on philosophy for theologians, but we want to equip you with a way to think about these questions. This program, as with all of our programs at Reformed Forum, is listener-supported. We have been growing quickly and have now incorporated as a nonprofit organization in Pennsylvania, and we're currently working on filing with the IRS for 501c3 status, which will allow us to accept tax-deductible donations. If you are able to support our work at Reformed Forum, please visit reformedforum.org and click the Donate Now button at the top of the page. You can also send us mail at P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. So to begin our new program, we have combined several clips of a larger philosophical discussion. These clips generally are not as constructive or instructive as future episodes will be, but we offer these as a sample of general philosophical theological engagement. So joining the discussion today are Jared Oliphant, who is Director of Admissions at Westminster Theological Seminary, Jonathan Brack, who is Admissions Counselor and, and a student at Westminster, Bob LaRocca, who is also a student at Westminster, and Nate Shannon, who is a Ph.D. student at the Free University of Amsterdam. There's an article, I think, coming out in Calvin Journal, which calls Bobbing's Realism Aristotelian. My argument is, you read it, you pull Bobbing's realism out of context, you can do whatever you want with it. You put it within the context of the prolegomena, and you take Bobbing's repeated, uh, repeated, his description of what it means to write theological prolegomena, his intention throughout the prolegomena, which delayed the, 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 which is at first a negative apologetic. It's, it's Vantillian. He lays down a negative apologetic. Each chapter starts with a historical overview of a topic, negative apologetic, and then the, and then the section will conclude with a reformed view of things. So I think the case can be made that his realism is a negative apologetic against uh, radical empiricism, radical rationalism. And he, he shows how, you know, uh, rationalism reads, uh, leads to um, um, absolute idealism, empiricism you know, they both lead to, they both self-destruct. And then he says, but all knowledge starts with, you know, right? With sure. what? Well, with, all knowledge starts... With sensibles. With sensibles. And that's fine. Kuiper says the same thing. Yeah. But, but that doesn't mean... Don't. 
it's it it starts there, but even Van Til will say that there's that there's a uh what is it he distinguishes between a, a starting point and a presupposition or something. Um epistemological versus psychological. Yeah, you can make epistemological any versus, versus psychological. And then and then uh in the end of the volume, as you read forward towards the end of the volume, uh Bobbing will say that the principle of analogy between the subject subject and the object of knowledge is the logos of creation. So I think that if if you allow the whole volume to speak at once, this theological context supports his realism. On what grounds? The question is, on what grounds does he say that realism is first in knowledge? Right? That's the same question we ask. The, the, on what grounds? So philosopher comes to us and says, realism is first, dude. You can't deny that everything around us is real, that my observations are yeah. valid. And, this is, and Reed that's, says, that's word what for Thomas, word. That's what right? Thomas would do. <clears throat> sure. It, Anybody, the guy who works at Wawa will do that. And then our question is, on what grounds? If you only take that realism section out of Bavink, which is less than three pages, I think, then you can call him the guy at Wawa, or you can call him a Thomas, <laughs> or you can call him an Aristotelian. But if you ask, what is the whole project of the prolegomena, and how does and how does Bavink account for that real? In other words, it's unfair. What is Bavink's realism? If you ask that, then, okay, Bavink, what's your realism? His realism is a creational realism. And what's his doctrine of creation? That the logos is the principle of similarity between the, the subject the, and the object. The difference is, though, what Van Til was critiquing about is not, it's not a revelational realism. And that uh, because, because uh, Bavink does have Thomistic tendencies, the, what you, what you, because, and because sensibles are the starting point because sensibles are the starting point of, of knowledge, Atomus would say the reason why sensibles are a starting point of knowledge is that the intellect has the ability to abstract universals from this from sensible sensible data. Yeah. But but, but and, we don't we don't have that ability because because that that whole ability has been criticized by what's wrong? No, but that whole Bavink will say we do have that ability, and based on or or we can say we do have that ability, and based on what Bavink says, the principle of similarity is the logos. But that's the that's the difference is that that's a that's a, that's an analogy, but that's not where that's not where Van Til is going. What Van Til is saying is that uh, essences are revealed to us through sensibles, and they reveal to us. Sorry, yeah, sensibles reveal to us their essences, which first and foremost is something like created, or analogous to uh, is its being being analogous to God. I I I don't think that. If you take a full account of the prolegomena and the doctrine of creation, which comes in the second volume yeah, of the Dogmatic, yeah. I don't think that would contradict Van Til. You don't think so? No, I don't think so. And I don't. And 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 I think it's I think it's too easy to draw similarities based on just uh, Bobbing's section on realism between almost anything. In fact, Walter Storff's article, unpublished at this point, so, and I was specifically asked not to reference it. Um, Walter Storff's article is titled uh, Bavink, Proto-Reformed Epistemologist. And he says that, that Bavink bears remarkable similarities to Reed. And, um, and Reed says that, you know, uh, Reed says that basically uh, any philosopher who makes nonsense of sense perception um, can be a priori rejected. Why? Because... You have to do so using sense perception. 
and you have to do so using the own constitution. You're going back that's, using that's, the constitution of of your. That's the that's the forked that's the forked view of, of current day realism. You either have a Thomistic view which respects the intellect, or a Reedian view which is, uh, respects perception. And and but, both but, of them. But but, but no. But if you want the ultimate ground, uh, Reed does ultimately. If you if you if you probe Reed, and Walter Storff agrees. If you probe Reed and ask what are the what is the ultimate ground for why these uh, faculties are accountable, um, Reed says our constitution. As created by God, Reed is not a theologian, so that's not the main topic of his project. He's not a, a Christian apologist, but you push Reed. That's why, and he says explicitly, um, "God-given constitution." Um, similarly, Bovink's uh, the issue with that constitution, though, for Reed, he doesn't he doesn't have the same kind of categories of thought. That this is what this is. Remember, we were talking one time in class that why people uh, claim that Van Til is a Kantian. Is because Van Til would say that we have categories of thought by which we interpret sensibles or interpret the world. For Reed, there we we have a constitution, whether it be in the image of God or or anything that we can interpret the world. But Van Til names the very categories of thought that allow us to do that, like the like sure, our doctrine it, but, of creation. But it, it, doctrine I don't of think it damages Reed's work that he doesn't doesn't finish the sentence. Do, what, do, do, what, I think not for him, maybe, but for all those who followed him, yes, like someone like Planica, it does, because you can start yeah. making arguments that are just common sense, and we have the ability to make common sense arguments because, of course, we have ability to make common sense arguments because, yeah, of course, yeah. we have ability to make common sense arguments. But because I don't of think that has no value, make- and I think I don't think that that's totally without value, and and and. I think its value is in a negative apologetic, which is exactly what Reed uses it for against what he calls the way of ideas, Locke and Walter Storff's view being chief among them. And so, you know, it works in that context. And, you know, we want to ask the grounds. And the other point I was going to make is that you know, as far as this constitution and the faculties and all that stuff, Bobbing's if you ask, okay, the realism, well, how do we know that? If you, if you ask, well, uh, what's this human constitution that you're depending on Bobbing? Then you have to go to Bobbing's anthropology, and it is a total imago day anthropology. Yeah. He has like a four point five point section where he says everything about the human being, based on the doctrine of creation, reflects the imago. Dei. And he says the body, the spirit, the soul, all the human faculties, and um, and and to say you know that he's Aristotelian or or whatever anything other than you know revelationally based realism is is to discount that biblically based anthropology. So you have to include that if you're going to say, well, how does he account for his how does he account for the the realism based on a biblically based anthropology, based on a, a logos based doctrine of creation? You know what I mean? Yep. I I don't I don't know, I I just <laughs> my my feeling Bob is that you would totally sympathize with Bobink is just I do. I so do viciously with, revelational. I know. Well, so how do you view the realism, though? Do you view it as a, like a methodological lapse or, or – At least in that section. That's the thing. I mean that's where – Yeah. I have no, to – The thing I'm getting from you right now is that I should read more of a wide scope and maybe I would have a different – maybe I would see him as more of having a uh, – more of a full-fledged revelational epistemology. But you don't get that in that You don't section. get that. And I, I think the – the the thing that I'll say, to sort and you don't of, get that in Reed at all. You would get that even more in Thomists than you get that in Reed. Sure, I, I'll give you. Yeah, sure. I, I get, but I, I think at least with Bobbing, you can say um, that his realism is meant to be sort of a uh, 
it's part of his negative apologetic. Okay. And if you and if you want to ask, I mean, you don't have to agree, but this is my read on it. And then this is my read on Bobby, read. not my read on Reed. <laughs> but uh, if what I think that you're saying is uh, that if Bavik was absolutely consistent then that with the rest of his dogmatics, then that wouldn't pop up in that prolegomena section. Right. Right. That's, that's, that's what I'm, that, I mean, that's what I'm saying. That's, that's, I, I don't know why he allowed realism. And I think that's and a that's more ben Thomistic Till's point when he's yeah, talking about point. an intro systematic theology. Yeah, that is his point. But don't you think realism that a Christian biblical foundation supports realism, oh, at least as a negative apologetic. That's, that's why, that's why I like, to, like if I were to pick a realism, whether it be, um, I, I, I do pick a realism after I lay foundations for it with, within Christian theism. Now the realism I happen to pick is I, 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 that's what I hope to maybe write my THM on is that we have ho- high, I have high hopes in Thomism because I think Thomism has a much stronger metaphysical structure laying its foundation for uh, more epistemological work to be done. And I just find Reed doesn't. There, there's a, not, this is a sidebar, whatever, I'm not going to apologize for it. There's a great section in Warrant the Current Debate on um, Dutch bets and their implications for probability for epistemology. The way he deals with, um, he has a whole chapter on Kaufman and Hick, and he deals with uh, religious pluralism. Um, and yeah, I mean, the the way he deals with these figures and his methodology of breaking the arguments down, um, and then just clearly laying them out and saying, okay, what is this guy actually saying on a formal level, and yeah, how do you apply that epistemologically? Practice, yeah, yeah, it it it's just great and. I haven't seen anyone do that to the precision that Planinga has done. And clearly, when he gets into the census divinitatis, he does not ground that in Romans 1. And I, and I clearly admit that. So I'm not saying, don't, don't commit the genetic fallacy on me saying that I endorse every single thing that Planinga writes. It, that, that's not it at all. When he gets into theology, he's getting into things that he, doesn't, uh, that he hasn't studied as much. Um, he's a he's a reform guy growing up in the um, reform community, the Dutch reform community, and that's great. But he hasn't developed his theology as well as he should. Right, I admit that. Um, but the way that he dissects um, arguments against Christianity, I think, is the best internal critiques that are out there. And so, when I look at planning it, I look at him supplementing Van Til. I think Van Til provides the absolute best external critiques and the biblical critiques against atheism and liberalism and everything that he's attacking. And then Planninga is uh, taken in context an extremely good internal critique for a lot of those same arguments. So you put them together and you have an amazing arsenal to um, just address a lot of those same arguments. The thing, the thing is, if I were to ask a follower of, follower of Alvin Plantinga a question like, does Plantinga uh, hold to a distinction between, a real distinction between being and essence? That is a basic, basic, fundamental decision any metaphysician has to make. Yeah. So, does he? 
Uh, well, he he doesn't he doesn't use the the uh, medieval categories that you want him to use. So he goes into modal logic and he uses possible worlds and he uses modal logic. And so if you're going to critique Plantinga, you have to critique him on that level. You can't say, "Hey, man, use medieval language on this thing." He's not going to do it. But okay? modal, modal Same logic thing, is retro still, that still on the uh, it's it's still on the level of epistemology and uh, and just. You know, just as it, it, it's just it's still a, quant, a, a quantifying philosophy and not so much a metaphysical one. No, not at all. Re, have you read Nature of Necessity? No, I mean, I've, I've just told, turn it into I told you how much I've read of Planet. Then, then, okay, if you're if you're gonna say these things, affirming that God has an essence. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, does God have a nature? You you got to read that. I know that that was in the yeah that the is book. in there. Yeah, and the analytic theory, but it's missing some unfortunate uh, conclusions. It's it is no, <laughs> it's missing a whole chapter. So read the actual the actual. All right. Does God have I mean, a that's nature? that's always it. I but guess that's, I have that's more reading the to point. Do. If I can uh, add to the arsenal, because everybody has their you know philosopher that they like to read on the side. Deleuze. Um, mine is uh, V W O Quine. Has anybody read him? Yeah, the, uh, in, guy, the yeah. indeterminacy of translation. Right. right. Read if you read uh, two dogmas of empiricism. Has anybody read that text? A long two dogma time ago. Is, of empiricism is like an unbeliever realizing that a posteriori claims and a priori claims, or synthetic claims and analytic claims, are the exact same thing, no matter who you are. Because, yep. in other words, what he realizes, what Quine realizes, and not in these words, is that they're the exact same. They're two different sides of the same coin, which is autonomous reason. He doesn't say autonomous reason. He just says he just notices that a priori and a posteriori claims can only be shown to be the exact same thing, to be equal. So, if you give an example, the the classic example is uh, all bachelors are unmarried males. That's typically taken as an it's totally not true <laughs> as an is an a priori or analytic so it's true by definition it doesn't need to have um content within right. it so what, what would you do with that well he would sh- he would begin to ask the question of you know uh like we you know on what grounds how, how do you know what's the definition of bachelor and and you have to ground every your whole definition your definitions are not grounded on like some sort of ideals. Yeah. Like it's like, yeah. well, I know uh, bachelor has a reference to some sort of numerical idea. Right. The references to the actual world, which is based on empiricism. Yeah. And so at the end, you have to begin to, to make any um, a priori claim. You have to appeal to empirical claims. And so it's, it's just a, a hermeneutical cycle that be, continues to eat itself. And yeah. So, that's, that's great. I think that's totally true. Absolutely. Yeah. So the funny thing is that he points that out. And at the end of the day, it's like, okay, what do we do then, Quine? Like, what's the answer? Like, thanks for pointing that out. And his <laughs> his answer is a sort kind of similar to kind of Kuhn, but it, it, it's sort of web of beliefs. It's like everybody has a sort of web of belief, yeah, yeah. and it, it it goes off and it starts logical positivism, and then it ends up absolutely postmodern. Sort of looking like Derrida or, or Strauss, yeah. And so it's silly because it starts one way and it ends the other way. But it's great as far as the fact that he makes the point clear using analytic argumentation that 
a posteriori claims and a priori claims are just two sides of the exact same coin. Yeah. Well, so I'm if, like, I, when I see that, I'm thinking that's that's Van that's a Van Til pox that he totally. puts in everybody's house, but he does it because he has, you know, a grounded revelation in which he can do it. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if if you take that that that's compl- I think that's that's great. If you take that and then put it into the Christian tradition, what would a purely analytic statement look like? Um, that and if you assume that that has no a posteriori or synthetic qualities, you would have to take that completely out of creation uh, altogether. And so, what in the world would look would that look like with no reference to creation whatsoever? It's it's absolutely impossible. We are created beings. We must derive our knowledge from it would look like this infinity plus infinity equals god does planet <laughs> does planet get into divine exemplars or divine ideas being the the exem, the exemplar uh variables in our in our in in, in our logical for our formulas i don't know if he he says those terms uh Explicitly, uh, maybe the closest thing that he does is in "Does God Have a Nature?" He deals a lot with divine identity. So, so if he affirms essences, what are they? They are um, something has an essence if uh, that property uh, exists in every possible world. So, in other words, it is impossible that this uh, being exist and not have property X. So, for example, whatever the essence is of you. Um, that we haven't figured out yet. Let's say uh, what obstinance. What is Bob's essence? <laughs> Nobody yeah, knows. Nobody. <laughs> but but no, In, seriously. I mean, when we when we say Bob and we don't say Camden, what do we mean by that? So let's boil it down. Um, could you have had blonde hair? Yeah, I think so. Um, could you have uh, derived from your bi- biological parents or or not? Um, is that essential to who you are? And so. Regardless of how you figure that out, let's say that um, you had to, to be you, you had to have been derived from your biological parents. Well, let's me appreciate Thomism is that it seems to be far less when it de- starts defining uh, essences, it defines them as potencies and they are potencies. Uh, they are things that are able to exist and they're able to exist because they have pre-existent divine ideas as their exemplar. And then they're actuated by efficient cause giving them being right. And so in this way, mm-hmm. essences take on. So, so what would you do with unicorns? How would that fit in? <laughs> those have those are those are exemplars. Are you making fun of my PJs, Jerry? <laughs> those are those Your are Lisa Frank folder. Those are essence. Those are essences that have no being. Like you can think, you can think of unicorn and what it is to be in a unicorn, and you can provide cognitional being to that unicorn and it can now exist in your mind. Uh-huh. But in itself, there are no, there is no real being for unicorns because it doesn't exist in this actual world physically. Well, because it just has not been actuated by Things God. Things can actually, yeah, that, that's different. And, and when you say when you say actuated, you assume a physical presence in the actual world. I'm assuming uh, efficient, spirit efficient, efficient causes. The, you know, everything. What Thomas would say is that everything is is caught is efficiently caught as as an efficient cause. Sure, he's Aristotelian. I mean, you can you can exist immaterially. Certain things. That's yeah. my question. Right. We we need to get a little bit more explicit on that. So you know, unicorn. Um, you're assuming it doesn't have a being because it doesn't physically exist in the actual world. Because I, well, as far as but I the know, idea yeah. does, doesn't it? We know what a unicorn is, and we know the pink that elephants that, or the flying spaghetti monster. Right. We know that that translates among different contexts. So there is some kind of essence to unicorn, isn't there? The idea. Yeah. Yeah. There's the idea. A, but that thing is like. 
with uh, with Atomus, we wouldn't want to start with like hypotheticals like that. We'd want to start with real, sensible things. Yeah, well, the and question so of what more... you start with is different from whether beings exist. Well, no, I'm just saying, like, if you're going to start, if you're going to, when, when we're talking about real things, we would say the exemplars of what an essence is is in it's a, it, it's a potency which is actuated by God. With possible world semantics, it just there. seems as though essence, what the essences of real things are almost. Uh, abstract abstract to a point where it's just doesn't really it's totally disconnected from our theism i think that's a true statement bob um i think when you talk about thomas there's something that's true of thomas that is not true of planning and that philosophy is a different discipline than than theology um planning is speaking to philosophers and he has a philosophical education and i think possible worlds uh that kind of talk in relation to theology, it has an awkward relationship to theological categories. Um, but what my point is, if we want to step, because we would, because unlike Thomists, unlike most analytic uh, philosophers, we believe that philosophy and theology have the same premises, right? Because that's what makes us. That's what makes us. We would say that any discipline it has to have a, a premise in Christian theism. Ultimately, we as Reformed people would say that. Yes. Yeah, so what? What, after we make that statement, leads most naturally, what can we connect most naturally without as many seams, you know, visible seams? Which philosophy? My, my contention is that Thomism works out better because it's actually formed by a theologian who's one of the greatest philosophers in the Western tradition. I think tradition. this is a great topic, um, but I, I think that... Um, it's a pragmatic the, argument. The question might be, the question <laughs> might be, I might put it this way from a biased point of view... Which is which would is more amenable to our point of view, a pure philosopher or a philosopher theologian who mixes those categories? Well, my my point is not that it's just he happened to do it and he was a theologian who's good at philosophy. My point is that it is structured as the actual philosophy itself is more theological, and it's theological and and much of much of that theology was appropriated by reformed people to begin with. Uh, you know, especially the Reformed scholastics in the 17th century, for a good reason, because much of it is amenable to the kinds of doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of God they had appropriated from Thomas anyway from the other scholastics. I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure that's true, Bob. I mean, the whole pre- presupposition of the post-Reformation Reformed theologians was obviously Scripture only, and I don't think Thomas qualifies that. Oh, no, not at all. I'm not talking about starting point. What I'm talking about is after you have that starting point. After you have that starting point, I believe that, with especially with matters of philosophy, seeing that essences are not autonomous abstractions of what can exist in possible worlds and cannot, but seeing essences as divine exemplars that are actuated by God's efficient causality is a much safer way for uh, for theologians to go. Possible worlds is not a, is not a replacement for a doctrine of creation. No, it's, it's just a descriptive category. What it is a, a, what is a replacement for is divine exemplar ideas. No, no, no. no, no I don't, I don't think all. it is, Bob. I don't think it is. Okay. I don't think it is. Um, if it were, I would. I would be. In, in total agreement with your objections, but I, I don't think it is. I just think it's I just think it's a linguistic sort of it's a convenient way of looking at uh, logical possibilities. And it's it, in a sense, Bob, you're right in the way that it has been used, but anything can be misused. I think there is a way to use possible world semantics in describing the theological categories and nuances that we want in Reformed theology in a helpful way that does assume that Reformed theological context. Um, I haven't worked that out completely, 
but I don't think that possible world semantics as a whole um, needs to be dismissed because of its misuse today in analytic philosophy. I agree with that. Let me let me give one example. Um, I think that uh, the the um, the difficulty of using possible worlds to talk comes to the fore is most obvious when you when you try to parallel it with the doctrine of creation. When you talk about whether God could or could not have, that's what or, I find the the Thomas to be really helpful for because yeah. these things are created by God. Possibilities right. are created by God, right. and then He just fills those with actuality. Well, in yeah, that, I think this is a I think this is a misapplication of the cat of 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 possible worlds um, semantics when you start to talk about because then you assume that well a possible world is filled with things. Right, it's filled with moral categories and all this. Yep. So then you have, when you try to relate it to the doctrine of creation, you have a whole menu of things which, Could. which laid before God, you know, which God had before His eyes before He created, before He actualized any of these things. But this is a massive, this is a massive mistake, theologically speaking, to say that, you know, whatever one through X options. Uh, were available to God, and that some were better than others, and that some were morally superior, some yeah, morally inferior. Yeah, this is a serious misapplication. But I don't think that that um, you should throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, yeah, it's such a morbid saying. And, but and this is this is where we have to keep the analogical uh, language in view, so that when we're talking about pre-creation and, and God creating. We have to keep the creator-creature distinction in mind. So possible world semantics applies only to the creature, oh, to, yeah, to the created world, not to God standing back pre-creation and saying, what are my possibilities here? Hmm, I could create a world in which Bob has orange hair or blue hair. I mean, that's that's not what is in mind here. Right. So it's assumed that the create. I, I think uh, in a proper analytic view – the creator-creature distinction is assumed, and in that way, possible semantics can be helpful if you have that theological assumption undergirding that. And that's right. not what analytic theism does these days. Yeah, not it, really. it takes it for granted. Um, so I think you're right in that today we see something that is misused, but I think it can be used in a helpful way given the uh, Reformed theology. And that's but the, and when you do that, it ends up kind of looking like Thomism anyway. Because what you're allowing is that spoken like a true Thomas. <laughs> well, no, I mean I, it starts no, looking. Kidding, it starts looking like it because, be, um, because what you're what you're saying is that possibility is being delineated by uh, divine ideas anyway. Mm, really? Yeah, because on the, the basis of the doctrine of creation, things just will. I mean, are not possible because God didn't create it as such. Because that's just not what it is. But we can say all the time that God could have done X. Yeah, God could have done almost anything. We don't. It's almost really difficult to decide what God could or could not do. These things are delineated on the basis of His will to create. Well, His nature. Now, on His nature, I think yeah, it's, God I think could it's not have worth, sinned. I think it's worth no. Basically. I'm not saying what God could have done. What I'm saying is like, right now we would say that uh, like a. Let's say the radius, like with pi, right? Is it possible for geometric no. formulas? Yeah. Could of those do the, do those have to be? Sure, sure. No, they don't have to be like it. Doesn't didn't have doesn't have to be like that. And but it is like that on the basis of God's will to yeah. to create it like that. 
to have an idea of it and fill that idea with actuality. Right. And where those ideas come from, well, that's his own will. But right. that's not necessary. Yeah. It's not, I mean, his possibilities are created by him. Yeah, exactly. And so that way, I guess that's what I'm saying. When you, when you, where we're meeting, it's just, I guess we're just going to end up sounding like each other. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going to sound like a Reedian, and you're going to sound like a, a Nursetillian. <laughs> Thank you for listening to our pilot episode of Philosophy for Theologians. Please let us know what you think. Visit reformedforum.org to comment on the post send us an email at mail at reformedforum.org. Of course, you can also Twitter us at Reformed Forum or reach us by telephone at 440-97-FORUM. That's 440-973-6786. This has been Philosophy for Theologians.